This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, Lights for Liberty, in response to the escalating humanitarian crisis at our southern border. A vigil will happen all across the country and the world on Friday, July 12th. We talk with the event's creator, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, an activist, attorney, and host of the online program Resistance Live, who says the event is aimed at creating a sense of common cause around one of the most profound crises of our time. My hope is that it will send an undeniable message that we all are connected and that there is a shared humanity of values here that will not tolerate these crimes against humanity, that will not tolerate the idea that there are some of us who are less worthy of safety and security. My hope is that it will unify all of us together around stopping this administration's policies and that it will be the start and not the finish of something revolutionary. Also, with the Senate race in Maine beginning to draw national attention, we chat with progressive Democrat Betsy Sweet about her plan to unseat Republican Susan Collins. We will also have a special call to action. That's all ahead, so stay with us. By now, most people have seen and heard about the abhorrent conditions for asylum seekers and migrants at our southern border. Children who had been separated from their families in Clint, Texas, were denied soap and toothbrushes and were sleeping on concrete with the lights left on 24 hours a day. And in recent days, largely because of visits from members of Congress, we have seen conditions that shock the conscience, overcrowding so severe that people are literally unable to move or sit down, some of whom have been directed to get their drinking water from a toilet. These are just the most recent developments in what has become a full-blown humanitarian crisis under the policies of the Trump administration. So in response, on Friday, July 12th, people all over the country and all over the world will be taking part in a candlelight vigil called Lights for Liberty, a nationwide vigil to end human detention camps. On the line with us now is Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin. She is an activist and lawyer. She is also the host of the online program Resistance live, and she is the lead organizer of Lights for Liberty. Elizabeth, it is so good to talk to you. Hello. Hi, it's great to be here. And just to be clear, I have a whole team of lead organizers with me, so uh, I don't want to I don't want to take all the credit. We've got a phenomenal team now that is uh, made up uh, in large part now of, of local immigration activists, uh, longtime folks who have been frontline providers for for the migrant community and for people in detention, uh, as well as those of us who sort of organically and in a more grassroots fashion came to to be starting uh, this series of events and what's now a worldwide movement. And duly noted on that, but uh, you were the person, I, I believe, who put all of this in motion. And so I'm wondering what the precipitating moment or event was for you. Yeah, it's um, it, it, it's funny because I was just talking to uh, last night, one of our fellow organizers is Toby Gialuca. And she is uh, she was a member of the Flores compliance team that was going in and out of the camps. Uh, to evaluate whether or not the Flores order that required safe and sanitary conditions was being met with. Uh, and so the origin for all of this um, is that Toby and I have known each other for some time professionally. She's also a lawyer. Um, and she called me about three weeks ago now, almost three weeks ago now, and said, you know, Elizabeth, I can't come forward publicly, but I have to tell you that there are things that I've seen inside these camps that people need to know about. And the only thing that I can think of right now is that maybe you can tell people what I've seen. 
And, you know, I'm not a journalist. I've never, you know, claimed to operate as a journalist, but she at the time was really an anonymous source for a lot of what, um, what we now come to know uh, as being, we've now come to know as being a sort of universal problems within these detention camps, universal atrocities, really, because we should call it what it is. Yeah. Um, and she told me about some of the things that she had seen. And it was about an hour long call where both of us cried. Um, and she described having um, talked to people who had been put in outdoor cages that were called the dog pound, um, having talked to migrants who had been held in icebox rooms that were 55 degrees or less for days at a time, who had been put in there wet um, coming off their journey uh, into the United States. She told me that she had seen babies who were listless and showing no signs of life that she did not believe would survive the night when she had been there. And these were randomly selected people who were brought to the floor as compliance team uh, as a part of the compliance efforts. And the details that she shared with me were, were so devastating that, uh, you know, I really felt I only had one choice. Um, and I took notes throughout our call. I wrote a thread on Twitter describing what she had said to me and really, um, you know, described in all the detail that she that she had given me that I was allowed at that time to disclose what she had seen. Um, and I had been very aware, of course, of what had been happening at the border, but not in that serious degree of detail from someone who had been an eyewitness right. to the atrocities of what had been happening. And that I posted that Twitter thread, and within a few days, it had been retweeted something like 55,000 times. Wow. Um, and then through a series of events, we were connected with um, a, a number of activists on the front lines at the border in Florida near the Homestead Detention Center, in places like McAllen, Texas, and Ursula, uh, folks who were on the front lines of dealing with uh, detention and roundups and processing of immigrants in New York City. And over the next three days, we, we were invited to consider a mass mobilization. Uh, and it was one of those moments where you're sort of called to something and you can't really turn away from it. And what started out originally as a plan to have a, a vigil in five main locations around the country has now spread to over 450 locations as of this morning worldwide. Wow. Um, we have events in every state in the country and the District of Columbia. As of last night, we were at 10 international locations as well. Uh, as well as an online vigil for all volunteers in the Peace Corps that will that will be held virtually. And those numbers continue to grow. So this is no longer just a vigil. It's really a movement. Well, I mean, people are outraged and they want to take action in some form. And I, I think the huge response to this vigil you're seeing is indicative of what people are feeling worldwide about the situation. Um, you know, I want to loop back and discuss what is happening at the border, because uh, you mentioned the work that your colleague Toby Gialuca did with a group of Flores compliance attorneys. And this is what DHS head Kevin McAleenan recently said were, quote, unsubstantiated allegations regarding a single Border Patrol facility in Texas that, quote, created a sensation. But then, uh, as was reported on Rachel Maddow on Tuesday, the Office of Inspector General released a, a report corroborating pretty much everything on it that's been alleged. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering what you make of this. Well, I'll tell you from my personal experience and what I know of Toby's experience, um, th these were never isolated events. Um, and indeed, the, the Office of Inspector General has now issued two separate reports that cover multiple facilities where 
the, the, the conditions within them and the treatment of the detainees meet the United Nations definition of genocide and crimes against humanity. This is not a one-off situation. It's not limited to one detention facility by far. And it is endemic to the way in which the Border Patrol Agency has been running itself. And again, you know, the the other bit of news, of course, that we've had this week is about that private Facebook group. Now, I was going to ask you about that. You've had some very interesting commentary about that. This is the, the Secret Customs and Border Patrol Facebook group filled with racist memes, threats against uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Julian Castro. And you actually made a solid point that the membership in this group is a substantial percentage of active CPB agents. Yes. And that that's one of the things that's so disturbing about it is that there's 9,500 apparently members in this private Facebook group. There's only 20,000 Customs and Border Patrol agents nationwide. So it's roughly 50 percent. If they're all current, yes. But we do know from ProPublica, which published the initial uh, article about this, that they have confirmed that, that there are not just active uh, CBP officers in there. There's also supervisors. And you combine that with what Ocasio-Cortez and a number of the other folks who were on the visit this week have said about the way in which they were treated just with utter disregard, um, you know, in, in ways that were incredibly disrespectful and that that conduct toward members of Congress was done in front of supervising officers inside these facilities. It's hard to reach any other conclusion than that there is something profoundly toxic inside CBP. And, um, you know, I can I think, you know, my day job is that I run a women's leadership company. I can tell you that when there are problems like this in a community or an organization, it stems from a failure of leadership at the top. So no. I look at all of this and what I see is a profoundly toxic, racist, obviously sexist as well environment. And again, I, I would point people to Jen Budd, who is a former CBP officer who served for six years in the CBP. She was interviewed last night on MSNBC, and she has written quite a number of, of tweet threads about her experience inside CBP. Only 5% of CBP officers are women. There are multiple examples of racist and sexual conduct, even preceding the current circumstances at the camps. Um, and, and my view is that at this point, the only way to fix this is to clean house. Um, and that mean that may mean a complete revision of the immigration system in this in this country, because we know that ICE has major issues. CBP as a sister organization obviously is toxic in so many ways. And we need really profound congressional oversight, not to mention a, just a complete house cleaning. And I, I personally think our immigration system needs a, a, a total reboot. Um, I, I am really not in favor of, uh, personally, I'm speaking now, of, of detention of, of folks who are seeking asylum in any way, shape or form. And indeed, all the data about the experiences of people who are, for instance, released on bond is that they show up for their hearings at a rate of something like 98%. Um, we know that immigrants to the United States commit crimes at a far lower rate than U.S. citizens. All of the propaganda that's out there about all the reasons why detention, let alone concentration camps, make sense is disproven by the data that is actually out there. Um, and so, you know, from my perspective, we're in need of a total overhaul. And in particular, I, what has shocked me, honestly, since the ProPublica article came out a few days ago, is that we have not yet seen a single action by CBP to hold those who have participated in there who are known people uh, responsible for what they have done. Yeah. And I want to shift over and talk about 
the uh, response and some of the actions in D.C., specifically uh, Democrats agreeing to fund a spending bill that appropriated $4.9 billion for spending on immigration. Um, A number of Democrats had wanted to earmark that money to make sure that it was used for relief for asylum seekers, but we know that they fell short and the majority of House Democrats voted for it. Give us your thoughts on the passage of that spending bill. Well, uh, I I um, I did not think it was a good idea. I don't think that's any that's any news to anybody. I spoke <laughs> out against it from the very beginning. Um, but for a number of reasons, there are problems with the bill that actually passed um, as it relates to things like safety and sanitary conditions, certain basic standards of accountability to service providers, meaning private companies that may potentially be running detention facilities and the like. Uh, you know, fundamentally, my view here is that. When you have a have a government entity, namely CBP or ICE, that are running concentration camps, the thing that you don't do is give them money to run more. And you know, the, all the folks who are very aligned on this front, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, Ayanna Presley, who gave an incredible speech in front of the Clint facility the other day. Um, uh, you know, I, again, these are all folks who voted against the spending bill, not because, and I want to make this very clear, not because there isn't a need. For, uh, for humanitarian conduct at the border, not because anybody wants women and children and migrants and people who are fleeing rape and violence and, and horrific conditions in their own countries to not be provided for, but because these organizations within our government cannot be trusted at this moment in time to do the right thing. This administration cannot be trusted to do the right thing. It's not as if Stephen Miller is going to wake up one morning and say, oh, no, I'm that I'm not going to be a xenophobe and a fascist, right? Um, to be <laughs> no, really blunt no, about it. He's not, not going to have some grand awakening because $4.5 million, a billion dollars in humanitarian aid has been granted that now all of a sudden he should be a good human being. Um, the, the, the system is the problem. And until the system is fixed, um, the idea of just turning over more dollars to the same entities, the same organizations, the same administrative bodies um, to, to do with it what they wish without any limitations fundamentally on accountability or basic standards of humanitarian care makes no sense to me. Yeah. And I think the whole situation also speaks to uh, the Republicans' uh, cravenness, uh, the Republicans in the Senate and also in the House, uh, in being willing to use this humanitarian crisis to their political advantage. But I guess, you know, as the adage goes, scorpion sting. Um, You know, what's led people to come to the U.S. border in in these record numbers are just the horrific conditions that we hear about in the so-called Central American Triangle. That's Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. Uh, In many cases, people's lives or the lives of their children are being threatened in their home countries. And that's why they're moved to take this incredibly dangerous journey. How would you like ideally to see the U.S. be addressing this situation? Oh, my goodness. Well, I'll speak for myself. Um, You know, my my view on this is that we have to end the criminalization of migration. And, you know, particularly as a lawyer um, and someone who has done human rights work, um, you know, I'm not I don't consider myself to be an expert on international policy, but I will tell you that from a human rights standpoint, detention of people who are fleeing for their lives in facilities that where they are being treated worse than people who are in super max prisons in the United States 
makes no sense to me. And I'll also just add, you know, I, our immigration system, we have to acknowledge the fact that it is built upon racism. It is built upon notions of racial hierarchy and that the detention of migrants at the border is an extension of an already racist criminal justice system in the, in the United States. So my view at this point, and again, you know, we, we have the capacity as Americans, as communities, to welcome in people who are fleeing violence. We have, you know, examples of this in our past history. There are examples of this at the border right now, where small towns have taken in up to 15,000 migrants who have been released by CBP um, for, for a variety of reasons. And those communities have risen to the challenge of finding housing, food, clothes, support for migrants who are in need of it. So we know what um, can work. We know it can work. We know it can work. And, and you know, I'll, the, the thing that concerns me about where we are is that the propaganda of, you know, we can't release everybody into the country, uh, it, it honestly, is disproven by the facts and the data that are out there. And so from the standpoint of what I would like to see at this moment in time. And I will remind all of your listeners that not a single person being held in detention right now is charged with a crime. Um, it, what makes sense is to release people. And many of the people who are being held in detention, by the way, have sponsors inside the United States. We're personally aware of a number of cases where folks arrived at the border with family members who were sponsoring them for immigration, where children were separated from their parents despite having sponsors here. And those folks have not been released to those sponsors, even though they meet every qualification for being here inside the United States. Um, you know, immigration policy at this point is a civil matter. It is a matter of paperwork being processed. Um, it does not make sense to hold people in camps or in detention or in dog pounds or in any other form of, of incarceration fundamentally um, while they await a ruling on their immigration status. It just makes no sense. Yeah. And I, sh I will also just point out for listeners here in Washington, a group called Freedom for Immigrants uh, have noted that it costs taxpayers more to detain people in the state of Washington, $145.19 per person per day than for any other state in the nation. So, you know, in addition to it being needlessly punitive and inhumane, it's also a huge expense for taxpayers. I, I do want to shift over and talk about Lights for Liberty. So this is, as you mentioned, it's happening all across the country and all over the world on July 12th. Um, there are going to be highlighted events happening in El Paso, in San Diego, and also in Homestead, Florida. These are places uh, with detention camps that have been very much in the news. So there's likely going to be a lot of press there. What can you tell us about what is being planned for those events? Yeah, so one of the things that was really important to us uh, as, as, as far as the national organizers go is that we really wanted to center on impacted communities and frontline service organizations that have been doing this work for a very long time. So those local events are really being led by small NGOs, nonprofits, organizations that are directly serving uh, folks who are in detention and folks who are being released into the community. Um, so for instance, in El Paso, you know, we're working very closely with organizations like the ACLU of Texas, like Hope Border Institute and the Border Network for Human Rights, um, like the Coalition to End Child Detention, um, Las Americas, which is a very uh, well-recognized immigration advocacy center, is also on the organizing body for El Paso. 
this uh, in El Paso, for instance, I'll just give you an example. They're starting at the Paso del Norte Bridge, um, and there will be a procession through El Paso to a park there where there will then be speakers, and those speakers will include impacted community members. Um, they will be, include um, the frontline activists and lawyers who are dealing directly with this impact, and there will also be music and blessings, and we have faith leaders involved at all of these events. Um, the local organizations are really leading those coalitions, and it was important for us to do that because um, those who are directly impacted can speak best to how uh, these policies are doing damage and what we need um, in terms of financial support, what we need in terms of awareness, what we need in terms of resistance and fighting back so that these communities really uh, do not bear the brunt of this without, uh, without mass public support. So those those organizations are really taking the lead. And just in terms of how you're asking other organizers to structure these events that are happening all across the country, I know there are some people listening for sure here in the state who are organizers. Mm-hmm. Um, you're asking them, I imagine, to structure things in a similar way to focus yes. on impacted persons uh, yes. speaking at these events. Impacted persons, people of color, of course, because obviously, uh, again, the immigration policies are racist and xenophobic. And it's important for us to recognize that um, the the voices of those who are most impacted are also the voices of those who are most frequently silenced. And so it's incredibly important for us from, you know, a a national organizing perspective to also have those speakers really be front and center at these events. Um, We are we are generally recommending a schedule where folks start at seven o'clock with speakers. Mm -hmm. Um, We have some circumstances, for instance, in San Diego, where blessing by local native tribes to open events. Um, uh, And that's happening in El Paso as well. And then um, as the events progress, uh, we're asking folks at sunset, Uh, at 9 p.m. in most locations to light candles, whether those are wax candles. In some locations, we're not allowed to do that. So folks are doing battery-operated candles or even um, gifts on their phone, apps on their phone. But really what we're looking to do here is to to light up the nation and the world and to bring light to this incredible darkness, to shine a light, as Ayanna Presley said so eloquently at the border the other day, on the atrocities that are taking place and to understand that This is a moment to hold vigil for all those who are being harmed by this administration's immigration policies Um, and to to bring light, to bring light uh, to what is going on. You know, sunshine, sunshine, as I say, is the greatest disinfectant. At this moment, the light that we are seeking to bring to this worldwide um, is also a form of of resistance. And, And this is the beginning. It is not the end. This is an incredible movement, coalition of organizations now, wonderful people all over the world from all backgrounds, Um, from all experiences who are coming together to really say, this is intolerable, we will not stand for it, and we will fight back until it stops. If people are looking for an event near them, if they're looking to host an event, they can go to lightsforliberty.org. And you've also said that if people can't find an event near them and they don't have, to say, the bandwidth to organize one, uh, you're encouraging people to light a candle and step out in front of their home. Um, I will mm-hmm. have all of this information for people at indivisiblepodcast.org. But I will just ask you, what do you hope will be the outcome of this vigil? That's a really good question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, the, I have several. Um, one of my primary hopes is that um, those organizations that have been 
fighting in the darkness without much awareness and much money will truly be given the resources, financial, emotional, political, to really um, to do more. Um, you know, I've talked to people who are working day in and day out inside these camps uh, to try to help people to get out. Um, and this, the limitations on what they're able to do just simply from a financial perspective are devastating. Um, so that that is definitely one aim of what we want. But I will tell you that from a big, uh, you know, international movement perspective, my hope is that it will send an undeniable message that we all are connected and that there is a shared humanity of values here that will not tolerate these crimes against humanity by this administration that will not tolerate the idea that um, there are some of us who are less worthy of safety and security and seeking a better life and seeking places where our families are free from violence than others. Um, my hope is that it will it will open the hearts of many, um, that it will unify all of us together around stopping this administration's policies and that it will be the start and not the finish of um, of something revolutionary. I will just ask you one last question, and, and that is something that's been on my mind a lot. Do you feel like we're at something of a tipping point? And if not, what do you think it's going to take to, to change policy in this country? I do feel like we're at a tipping point. Uh, I feel very strongly, and that's one of the reasons why the invitation to do this, the call to do this fundamentally was one that could not be refused. Um, I feel that if we do not at this moment in time, take as strong a stand as possible against what is happening, what will come next will be the stuff of our worst nightmares. Yeah. And, you know, we, we have plenty of historical precedent for this. Um, I, I, I find myself reminding people all the time now that the concentration camps in Nazi Germany did not start out as extermination camps. They started out as concentration camps. Um, they started out as places where people were rounded up and held. And we have to look to the fact that um, that systems of oppression, when given this much power unreined, um, and and w- which move toward autocracy and fascism, do not stop until um, the ends are things that we, we thought were impossible and and are so tragic as to be unspeakable. So I do feel we're at a tipping point. And, you know, I will tell you that um, that my sense at this moment in time is that um, this is no longer about Democrats versus Republicans. It's really fundamentally a battle between what is right and what is wrong, what is moral and what is profoundly unjust, um, even what is good and what is evil, if you want to put it in those terms. And from this standpoint, my uh, my gravest concern right now is that we have not seen the leadership of the Democratic Party exercise the power that they have to limit what this administration can do. So we need to we need to face the fact that the pressure that we need to levy at this moment in time is not just against the current administration. It's actually against the leadership of the Democratic Party to step forward and be brave and take a stand and say this is intolerable in our nation and we will do whatever we can to stop it. Um, and, you know, beyond that, it's really on us. We're a participatory democracy. We are the people we have been waiting for. There is no one swooping in to save us but us. And it is a moment unlike many others that we have seen um, to use our voices for change, for every one of us to speak up and to make a difference and to fight back. 
Yeah, speaking out, standing up collectively is—it's—it's it's really the order of the day right now, and that's what Lights for Liberty is all about. So uh, vigils are happening Friday, July twelfth. You can learn more at lightsforliberty.org, and you can and should check out Resist Live, uh, which is a show that Elizabeth does. You can find it on Facebook or wherever you get your podcasts. Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin. Thank you for the work that you're doing. I know that you have been uh, running really low on sleep, so I hope that you're getting <laughs> enough rest. I hope that you're taking your, you. uh, your vitamins and all that. But thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. The Senate race in Maine is getting national attention, largely because Senator Susan Collins voted in favor of the GOP tax cuts and then most notably voted to confirm Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. In the last few weeks, some prominent Democratic challengers have stepped forward, including my guest, Betsy Sweet. She is a lobbyist and former candidate for governor of Maine, and she joins us now. Hello, Betsy. Hi, how are you? It's great to be here. So I should just mention that you are joining us via Skype from a remote island in Maine, which sounds just lovely, and we're glad that you could take the time. So, um, you know, for people outside the state, just give us an idea, if you can, of Maine's politics. So we know that it has sent moderates to the Senate in recent years. So we think of Republican Olympia Snow and then, uh, of course, Angus King, who is an independent. But you also had Republican William Cohen, who went on to be defense secretary under Bill Clinton. So what can you tell us generally about the politics in Maine? You know, I think the politics in Maine are pretty independent, honestly. Um, the vast majority of our voters are independent, are registered as unenrolled. Um, and what people want in Maine is someone who is honest, someone who understands their lives and then votes accordingly. And I think we have some, I mean, I think we have some special issues being a very rural state, being a very northern state, um, having our economy pretty much based on our natural resources, which are under threat right now. So, but I think that we like people, we like to be able to see our politicians and talk with them um, one-on-one. You know, one of the great things is um, in our state legislature and our national elected representatives, you know, we actually feel like we get to talk to them and, and they get to hear about our lives. And I think that's one of the things that's been lost with Senator Collins over the years is the longer she's been in, the further away she's gotten from both the issues that represent Mainers, but also the style that represents Mainers, you know, being out talking to people, being in the farms, being on the back of lobster boats, being, you know, being in the streets, being very present and visible. So people can come see, talk, shake hands. That's what we like. But in terms of the issues, I can imagine one that has been a source of real concern is that of women's reproductive rights. Talk about what you heard from Mainers in the wake of Collins voting to confirm Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Well, I think for the women in Maine especially, it felt like a punch to the gut because Senator Collins had had some decent votes on family planning and on some choice issues. And this issue, the one that we needed her most on, this lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court, and it was Gorsuch before him as well, she left us. She, She left us. And so I think it felt like all those other votes were immaterial given this one huge thing, you know, and now we see what thousands of bills in the state legislatures across the country, anti-choice bills, restricting choice, trying to get to the Supreme Court. And, you know, one of the assurances that she got from Justice Kavanaugh was that he believed in settled law, you know, that was some, when something was settled law, that should, you know, that should be it. And yet he's already authored the opinion on two cases in which he undid settled law. And so the question was, was Senator Collins naive enough? Like we all saw it. 
we saw that you couldn't trust this guy in the course of his hearings and what happened, you know. And so was she naive or did she not care? And neither one of those things are good for a U.S. senator representing us. And the other thing is that, you know, it wasn't just Kavanaugh. I mean, there's 32 other judges, anti-choice judges that have been put in the lower courts that she has also voted for. That's right. And I think that's something a lot of people didn't know about. You mentioned that in your uh, campaign video. It's pretty jaw dropping. Um, And I'm wondering, was this the issue that got you to throw your hat into the ring here? Well, I think uh, it was one of them for sure, because I felt that punch to the gut. But to me, it was that it was the tax cuts. And it was the drifting away of where we are and, it, and frankly, the, um, our issues with our environment. I feel like what's happened is our system in Washington is so broken. You know, I feel like our house is on fire and Washington continues to bring a watering can. Mm-hmm. You know, there, I mean, I, think, I don't think there's bold action. I don't think there's courageous action. I don't think that the level of activity is, is worth what the level of the problem is. I mean, take, take, for example, there was a lot of actions across the country and here in Maine, too. I was here. I was at one before I came here of the the issue of children and families in detention centers on the southern border. What are we doing? Like, who, Forget immigration policy. I mean, we can talk about that for a long time. Who are we as Americans, as Mainers? Who the hell are we? You know, and I think that's the part that seems so lost. And to me, the bottom fundamental issue is money and politics. So I, I was part of an effort as an advocate. You know, the way I'm, I am called a lobbyist because they don't have a way that you can say that you're an advocate <laughs> on the ethics forums. But the reason I became an advocate was because I worked for the Maine Women's Lobby and the Commission for Women. And I saw that the only people who were being advocated for were wealthy corporations and businesses who could afford full-time lobbyists. So there were hundreds of and thousands of Mainers' voices who were not being heard. So I said, and nobody could afford a full-time lobbyist, you know, the people who were had AIDS or people who needed health care or low-income folks or women. We didn't have, no one had enough money. So I thought, well, if everyone pitched in a little bit, we could at least have someone there who was at the table with those voices. And that's why I started my advocacy business. So in 1996, we were appalled that a state Senate race cost $6,000 to run. And so we, we did all the research. I helped do, I did most of the research to find all the incidences in which money had actually played a role in changing votes. And we instituted the first public election system in the country in 1996. And I still think no matter what the issue is, whether it's taxes, whether it's healthcare, whether it's climate, the fundamental underlying issue is the undue influence of money in politics. And that to me is, that's my driving passion, keep me up at night thing that I think would change our politics and make it so we had a government truly of the people. I completely agree. And I also just have to tell you that my jaw dropped a little bit when you said that it cost $6,000 to run a Senate race in uh, 1996. I know, right? That's how how we were so upset. We were so upset. And now it's like, you know, $85,000. You know, it's absurd, but we were so sad. We were so like, $6,000, that's terrible. So (laughs) things have changed, but not the bottom bottom line issue. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, recently, Democrat Sarah Gideon announced that she is going to challenge Colin also, she is the Speaker of the House in Maine. Uh, many people see you as the more progressive candidate. So I will ask you the question that I'm sure if you have not gotten yet, you are going to be getting a lot of. And that is, if Maine has elected moderates like Collins and Angus King to the Senate, do you feel that Mainers are ready to elect a strong progressive in 2020? Absolutely. And, you know, it's such a funny thing. You know, I love I love labels and talking about labels because you know, what's progressive about getting health care? You know, what's progressive about getting fair taxation? 
Like that's not, that's just, you know, Maine here, we call it common sense. You know, we call it wicked smart common sense. You know, it's just, <laughs> I, I just don't, when I talk to people, they're so sick of Washington. You know, they're so sick of that, that they, there's no common sense there, you know? And I think that when I talk to people, again, going back to those values, I so quickly am able to believe and see and talk with people about that value. You know, I'll, I'll bring up the issue that no one ever wants to talk about in Maine politics. Let's talk about gun safety, right? So, you know, people say, oh, you can't talk about that in Maine and win. Well, I think that's wrong. You know, and I had such experiences in the governor's race in which I had, you know, these anti, you know, they, they thought we were so afraid people wanted to take their guns away and stuff. And I said, okay, let's stop this. Let's stop talking about this in terms of labels and in terms of our, you know, the funding source, you know, who's who's paying for us to believe these talking points. And I, and I said, let's go. So I asked this gentleman who was, you know, uh, challenging me. I said, so I said, do you have children? He said, yes. And I said, okay, do you want, I'm assuming that you don't want your kids shot at, at a concert or at a church any more than I do. Cause this is right after all the, so many of the mass shootings. He said, no, I don't. I said, great. So I said, we agree on that. Right. And he said, yes. I said, okay, let's go from there. Let's you and I sit down and say, okay, how do we keep our kids safe? Now we may tussle back and forth about the best way to do that. But if we stay grounded in the value of how do we keep ourselves and our families safe, then I think we get to progress. And so, you know, I think, I mean, there's, you know, we can talk about, you know, people say climate change, Green New Deal. Okay, well, we can talk about it that way. Or I can go sit on the lobster boat with my buddies and say, so how's the catch? Catch is down, huh? And they know it's because the ocean's too hot. And they know it's because it's too acid. And they know that the styrofoam buoys that they're using are contributing to that. Right. And so then the question is, okay, how do we fix those? How do we fix those things? Not how do we have a talking point about the Green New Deal or whatever else? It's, it's like, no, 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 no. We got a problem here. Uh, we see the problem. We live it every day. So now, how are we going to fix it? And I think if we get away from those labels, and I think, you know, people just so appreciate right, right, left, center. They just want to have a real conversation. You know, and I think that's the part that we've gotten steered away from. We've gotten lazy. We've gotten pulled away from, you know, we want to be able to demonize people and create the bunkers. And I just think that it takes a real person to come talk to folks and break those down. And I think that's something I'm particularly skilled at. And it's how I live my life. You know, what you see is what you get with me. And um, it's how I raised my kids. And it's how I think I've been able to be an effective advocate for the last 40 years. You certainly have to know that there is a lot of national attention on this race. The majority for the Democrats in the Senate absolutely leads through Maine. Uh, but uh, yeah. a recent piece that I read in the Bangor Daily News says that uh, the Collins race is getting more attention nationally than it is on the ground in Maine at this point. Are you finding that to be true? Yeah, definitely. You know, people are like, Bats, what are you doing? It's a year and a half away. Stop. <laughs> You know, about this. So, I mean, I think, I mean, I think there's a core group of people, both progressives and, you know, core Democrats who are like, we got to get everything. We got to do it all right now. And, um, and I think nationally we feel that way. And I think you're right. Any, any, any line to a Senate, a democratic majority in the Senate goes through Maine, 
Um, but I think people are, I think people are ready to talk about it, but I think they want to have meaningful conversations. And so what I say is, well, if we're going to have a meaningful conversation, we can't just reduce it to sound bites and bumper stickers in the last month of, you know, of a campaign. So right. I think that's the opportunity that I'm taking is, you know, going to every corner of the state, talking to people at fairs and farmers markets and, you know, everywhere that people are. Um, and I think that's the reason for, I think, um, it's sort of more quiet but it's still very significant conversations. And people know, people feel it in their gut, not just in Maine, I think everywhere, that something is very wrong and we've got to do something different. Betsy Sweet is a Democrat in the race to unseat Republican Senator Susan Collins. If you would like to learn more and if you would like to donate, I know that would be most welcome. You can go to BetsySweet.com. So we will close on our call to action, and ordinarily we do that with our friend research team leader Stephen Wilhelm, but because of the holiday, the research team has taken the week off. Uh, But really, the call to action is very simple this week. First, uh, do make plans to attend or even host a Lights for Liberty event on July 12th. If there isn't one in your area and you have the ability, uh, please do consider staging one yourself. Uh, I should also mention that National Indivisible is a co-sponsor of the event. Uh, But beyond that, Contact your member of Congress and ask him or her to speak out about the situation at the border. I mean, as we talked about with Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin earlier, we know that the border funding bill was a tough call. And I believe that the Democrats in our state's delegation voted their conscience. But now that that is passed, we need all of our members to speak out. We need them to be loud about this. Call them and ask them to visit these detention facilities at the border, like Pramila Jayapal has done. Tell them to bring camera crews, demand that they use the pulpit of their elected office. I know that many of us, myself included, volunteered, canvassed on behalf of Democratic candidates because we wanted them to hold the Trump administration accountable. That is what this is about. That is what this moment is about. Look, those of you who have been regular listeners know that I really don't editorialize and I'm not given to hyperbole, but I will say that I believe that history will see what is happening at the border right now as the signature crisis of the Trump administration, which is a very high bar indeed. What we do, and especially what our leaders do, matters. So call your member of Congress and demand that they act now. That is this week's call to action. And that is also it for this week's show. If you missed anything today, if you would like to catch up on some of the past shows, if you would like links to any of the things that we talked about, you can find all of that and more at indivisiblepodcast.org. And you can subscribe to the show there too. If you would like to get in touch, and I would love it if you did, the email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to my guests, Elizabeth Cronice-McLaughlin and Betsy Sweet. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.